Well, I want you to do me a favor and dig into the recesses of your memory back to high school English class. Now, I know many of us have tried to erase those memories as far from our brains as we possibly could. But remember a class you maybe took in high school called American Literature. And if your American Lit class was anything like mine, uh, I read, we read a book by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Scarlet Letter. Anyone have to read that in high school? Okay, a couple of you did. For the rest of you that didn't read it or chose not to raise your hand or just don't remember that you read it because you don't remember anything about high school English class, I'm going to recount the plot line for you. I'm going to spoil the whole book. And don't worry, if you haven't read it yet, you're probably never going to read it, so I don't feel too bad about it. But Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote this book in uh, the 19th century recounting uh, 1600s Puritan New England. And when he starts the account, it picks up with this woman, Hester Prynne, is on top of the scaffold in the entire town, and she is being convicted of a capital crime in this society of adultery. She is pregnant with a child that's not her husband's. Her husband had been long lost for a long time, and she's pregnant, and the dad isn't, isn't him. And on the scaffold with her is the minister of the town named Arthur Dimsdale. And he's grilling her, trying to get her to confess who the dad is. And she won't say anything. For three hours, she stands there getting grilled in public humiliation. And she's sent off to jail and spends some time behind bars. And then after she gets out of jail, she ends up moving into this cottage on the other side of town. And as a punishment for the rest of her life, she has to wear a giant scarlet letter A on her chest, which stands for adulterer. You can talk about public humiliation. But as the story goes on, we follow Hester and her daughter Pearl, and we start to learn a little bit more about the minister. His name is Dimmesdale. And as the story progresses, his health declines. And it gets worse and worse, and some people are beginning to, to think that uh, there's really no reason that his health is declining. It must be because there's some unconfessed sin in his heart that is just eating away at him. And as the reader continues, we find out that it's Dimmesdale, the minister, that's the father of Hester's child. The one who'd been on the scaffold grilling her, trying to get her to confess who the father was. And the story continues and continues and his health gets worse and worse and worse until he gets to the point where he stands up on top of the scaffold in front of the entire town with Hester next to him and confesses his sin and in the next moment collapses over, collapses and, and dies in the arms of his lover. Not what we would call a happy story. So if you were planning on reading it, sorry, I just saved you a couple hours of your time. But it was the guilt that ate away at Arthur Dimsdale and ultimately it led to his death. Now, if I had to guess, I think a lot of us know that feeling of guilt. Maybe not to the same extent as Dimsdale, but we know the feeling of guilt and shame. I'm convinced that guilt and shame are at epidemic levels within the church, within young adults. If you're dealing with feelings of guilt and shame tonight, I promise that you're not alone. And I think the guilt and shame can come from a couple of different sources. Maybe it looks a little bit like Dimsdale, where, where somebody is dealing with unconfessed, unrepented of sin, and that guilt is eating away at them. I mean, the only solution for that is confessing 
to those that we've sinned against, confessing to God, repenting, turning away from that sin. That's what Dimsdale needed to do years and years earlier, even though the cost would have been painful. But there's others of us that might fall into a different camp. Because when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ for, his sal- for our salvation, then all of our sin, past, present, and future, is paid for at the cross. We're forgiven. Look at what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we, can, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That, that opportunity of forgiveness and cleansing is unilateral. It's unconditional. If we confess, he forgives. But for some reason, there's, there's some of us that still carry around guilt and shame in our hearts over sin that's already been confessed. It's already been repented of. We've already turned away from it. Yet we still carry guilt and shame in our backpack. Because here's the deal. When we look in the rearview mirror at our life, every single one of us has things that we're ashamed of. There's things that we hope that nobody ever finds out about. There's things that we wish we'd never done. There's things that we fear that if our friends find out about it, that they're not going to like us anymore. We all have junk in our past that's called sin. And when we know Christ, I think we can intellectually know that we're forgiven, and we talk about being forgiven, but we can still have guilt in our heart. Why? Well, one reason is certainly our spiritual enemy, the devil, Satan. He wins when we give in to guilt and shame. And it sounds a little bit like this. Maybe he places a thought in our mind and says, you're the only one who's ever struggled with this. Or if they knew what you've done, man, they wouldn't be friends with you. Look at what you've done in your past. God could never love you. You could never be forgiven. Come on, you deserve to walk around with a a scarlet letter A on your chest because of what you've done. And Satan puts those thoughts in our mind. Maybe the enemy can use a trigger word in a conversation. Maybe it's even a topic that comes up in a sermon that brings up guilt and shame in our heart. Abortion. Maybe you've had one. Maybe you've encouraged somebody else to have one. And anytime we talk about that issue or we talk about what it means to be pro-life, it brings up these feelings of guilt and shame over what's happened in the past. And we think, man, God could never forgive me. Maybe it's premarital sex or pornography. Certainly a topic that we talk about plenty, it feels like. Maybe every time those words are used, it brings up thoughts of what one's done in the past and mistakes that they've made, and it brings about feelings of guilt. Maybe it's self-harm or suicide. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there tonight. And every time that topic is discussed, the pain returns. Or maybe it's a brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes our uh, well-intentioned brothers and sisters can cause pain in our hearts and they don't even know it. It's a conversation in small group when somebody says, yeah, a Christian would never struggle with that. And that is a part of our past or present. It's that off-color gay joke that just burns for the brother or sister who's struggling with same-sex attraction, reminding them of pain in their past, struggles in their present. It's that comment when somebody pokes fun of a druggie when somebody crossed the table in small group is two years sober and is trying their best to stay away from the relationships that brought them into sin. It's when somebody makes a joke calling somebody else a little bit pudgy 
but that person has been dealing with an eating disorder or an identity issue for years and nobody knows about it. It's a look of judgment from a close friend when we confess something deep in our heart. Even our own brothers and sisters can bring about that guilt and shame in our hearts. And regardless of where it comes from, whether it comes from somebody else, from our heart, from the enemy, guilt and shame is real. And, and when we carry that around on our shoulders, it cripples our relationship with God. It stunts our growth. It, it forces us into isolation, into hiding, and staying away from relationships with people. Friends, that is not what God wants for you. So what do we do? <laughs> when we feel guilt and shame over a past mistake, what do we do? Well, we need to drive the truth of God's forgiving grace deeper and deeper into our hearts. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Micah tonight. Instead of trying to fly through the whole book, we're just going to look at three verses in Micah chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there with me. Otherwise, the words will be up on the screen behind me. We're going to be in Micah 7 verses 18 to 20 tonight. Follow along as I read. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. He'll cast our sin into the depth of the sea. He'll show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Well, let's look at that first line. He starts with a question, who is a God like you? <laughs> I mean, it's a question in the poetry that demands a negative response. There is no God like God. There's no one like him. No one will come close to him. No one will compare to him. No one can ascend to his level of splendor and glory and majesty. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of our very lives. And God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And he's set the standard for morality for us, for humanity, which is moral perfection. I mean, if we want to have a relationship with the holy God of the universe, then we have to be perfect, which is bad news for us because we break that standard, not just once in our lifetime, but what seems like maybe once every hour. And sometimes we look down the row and we think, man, well, I'm doing better than the person sitting two or three seats down from me. And that temporarily makes us feel better about ourselves, but at the end of the day, it doesn't do us any good. Because even if we're maybe a better person than somebody else, that's not how God judges us. His standard is perfect holiness. It's not relative, it's absolute. And as we've been reading through the prophets, as we've been discussing in the last couple of weeks, we see God's intense hatred of sin and wickedness and evil. God does not like sin and his standard is holiness. And when we talk about God's forgiveness, someone might accuse God of, of being soft on sin, that he just kind of ignores sin and, and lets it slide. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. God is serious about punishing sin. And we see that earlier in the book of Micah. In chapter 3, the context is, uh, chapter 2 rather, the context is the sin of Israel. And here's what chapter 2 verse 3 says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I'm devising disaster. From which you can't remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily or in pride. It will be a time of disaster. God is serious about sin. He's serious about bringing discipline and punishment 
because of sin. And that wasn't just something that was true for Micah's audience. (laughs) That's true for us as well. Because we've earned, because of our own sinful behavior, punishment. The wage, what we've earned from our sin, as Romans 6 tells us, is death. And that's not just earthly death, that's eternal death, that's spiritual separation, eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell. That's what all of us have earned by our own sinful behavior. That is not just bad news, (laughs) that is the worst possible news. But we know that's not where the story ends. There's good news. God forgives. I mean, look at the rest of our passage. Look at verse 18. Micah gives us a picture. He pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. Pardoning iniquity is somewhat of a legal term. I mean, imagine in an earthly sense, someone has a felony on their record. That's going to stick with them for the rest of their life. And it's this rain cloud that seems to cover everything that they're doing. Try to apply for a new job, and it comes up. Do a background check, it comes up. It's keeping them from doing what they want to to do. Just follows them for their life. But God pardons iniquity. In other words, he takes a whiteout right over that pronouncement. He clicks control X, he clicks delete. The sin is wiped clean, it's gone forever. He pardons iniquity, never to be counted against our record again. And then the next line, he passes over transgression. When a good Jew reading through Micah would see those two words, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Passing over would point back to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover of the Jews. When they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and the tenth plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians was the angel of death that was going to come through the land at, at night, taking the life of every firstborn child. But God provides a, a way of escape for his people and, and commands them to, uh, to kill an unblemished lamb a one-year-old lamb at, at dusk, and take the blood from the sacrifice and paint it on the doorpost of their home so that when the angel of death came by in the street, that he would pass by, he would pass over their home. It's an incredibly symbolic experience from Exodus chapter 12. That's the metaphor that Micah is using here. And the Jews then every year following would celebrate the Passover remembering what God had done for them. But it was a picture looking ahead of the perfect Passover lamb that was to come. Because when God forgives us, he doesn't just forget about our sin. He doesn't just overlook it and simply erase it. And when we think about forgiveness, the word isn't even in our text, but it's clearly all throughout the end of Micah 7. Forgiveness literally means to absorb the debt to pay the penalty. And when we read a text like Micah chapter 7, we always read it through the lens of Christ. We always look at it through the lens of the gospel. And think of Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where Paul writes this, And you were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled our record of debt, not just by ignoring it, not just by minimizing it, but taking our sin and placing it on Christ. It was my sin, it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. He was the perfect Passover lamb. And that's what it means for us to be forgiven to have Jesus pay the penalty for our sin. Though we deserve God's punishment, he's offered us forgiveness. 
though we deserve hell, he's offered us heaven. Though we deserve abandonment, he's offered us adoption. Though we deserve to pay the price for our sin, Jesus has paid the price for us. The forgiveness is available to all people, but it only applies to those who turn away from their sin and trust in Christ for their salvation. Repentance and faith. Repentance, turning away. Faith, believing that when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for our sin. That's what it means to be saved. And if you're carrying around a backpack filled with guilt and shame tonight, is it possible that you don't know Christ? Is it, imp- is it possible that you haven't yet turned away from your sin and cried out to Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? Because all of us must come to a point in our life When we cry out to Jesus, asking him for our forgiveness, for his forgiveness in our lives, asking him to be our savior. It's the most important decision that any of us could make. He's offering to you and to me forgiveness. A free gift. It's amazing. But that might not be the only reason that someone could be struggling with guilt and shame. Even someone who has known Christ for years can carry around a backpack of guilt and shame. So if there's two words that you remember tonight, and that's it, you forget everything else, here it is. God forgives. God forgives. And for the rest of our time, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And Micah gives us a couple pictures, some nuances of what that forgiveness looks like. The forgiveness that we all can experience through Christ. So allow me to read verse 19 again from our passage. He, the Lord, will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Well, Micah there gives us two pictures that give us a glimpse into God's forgiveness. The depth of his forgiveness. It starts by saying that he takes our sin and he treads it under his feet, which sounds kind of technical, but it's a phrase that we actually use. It's a phrase that we use often within the sports world. When I played basketball in high school, if I came home and I told my parents, we got walked on tonight, or we got trampled, it's like the same thing as saying, yeah, we got our butts kicked, and it was embarrassing. And I wish I could say that never happened to me when I played sports, but that would be a lie. I remember one tournament that we went to, uh, we got the sportsmanship trophy, which is worse than a participation trophy because the sportsmanship trophy is given to the team that is the worst, but hey, at least we were polite when every other team doubled our score. I mean, it was embarrassing. Nobody wants a sportsmanship trophy. We should just get rid of those in sports tournaments. There's another tournament we went to. We, we lost every game for three years in a row. It was embarrassing. We got trampled. But that's the picture here, the metaphor, that God has trampled our sin. He's defeated it. He's walked all over it from the opening kickoff from the tip-off. Sin didn't even have a fighting chance because Jesus has defeated sin once and for all on the cross. And there are so many theological implications that can come from this simple truth. That when we have a relationship with Christ, when he's our Lord and our Savior, then he's defeated sin. That we don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. That we don't have to give in to temptation. Yeah, we're going to struggle. Yes, sometimes we're going to fall. But through Christ, we don't have to give in Jesus is stronger than sin because sin has already lost the game and we are on Jesus' team. I think some of us need to hear this tonight. That maybe the fight against sin has been extra hard lately. Maybe you believed a lie that 
sin is too strong, that I just, I can't say no to this anymore. But sin's already been trampled. Because God is faithful. He's not going to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but we can, he'll provide a way that we can stand up under it. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. God has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. We can resist temptation because Jesus has already defeated sin. We have the power in Christ to resist. We can't accept defeat by what's already been defeated. And we resist temptation through the word of God and through prayer, by spending time in community, by exposing the sin in our heart. We don't have to accept defeat by what's already been defeated. Well, you'll see the next line in verse 19. He will cast our sin into the depth of the sea. It's actually interesting. An Orthodox Jew, after this was written, would take this passage and they would read it on the Day of Atonement. So it's Yom Kippur. It's a day that happened every year for the Jews when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of the sacrifice and pour it on the altar as a, a way to atone for the sin of the people. It was a very symbolic day. Leviticus 16, a really interesting chapter filled with symbolism, if you want to read that this week. It was a very important day for the Jews. It was a picture of what was to come in Christ. But what an Orthodox Jewish boy or girl would do is on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, they would take their Bibles and they would read through this passage next to a stream. And after they would read through it, they would empty out their pockets symbolically and putting their sin into the stream as a picture of God washing it away, which is kind of an interesting picture. But in reality, the word picture in this text is far deeper than just putting our sin into a stream and watching it flow. Instead, it maybe could look a little bit like this. Think of the deepest valley, the deepest location in the entire world. It's the Mariana Trench in the heart of the Pacific Ocean, some 36,000 feet below the surface of the sea. If we were to take Mount Everest and tip it upside down so that the peak was in the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it would still be submerged by 1.2 miles. I mean, this thing is deep. It was discovered in 1875 in the Challenger Expedition. And in 2009, it was actually claimed as a U.S. monument, which to me has to be the world's biggest joke. I mean, first of all, it just exposes the pride of America that we think that we can claim the Mariana Trench as a monument. And second, it has to be the least visited U.S. monument in the world. There have been four, four manned expeditions to the bottom of the Mariana Trench which I don't know about you, but just thinking about being in a submarine 36,000 feet below the surface of the water, there's no way I'm claustrophobic just thinking about it. But think about the Mariana Trench. And let's say next summer, 2022, we decide we're going to can the young adult camp out. And instead, we take a young adult cruise. <laughs> Sign me up for that. Well, let's say we're in the Pacific, off the coast of Guam, and we come upon the Mariana Trench. And just as we get to the Mariana Trench, the cruise ship decides that they're going to open up the driving range. And I don't know, I don't think there's anything too much more satisfying than taking one of these and pummeling it into the ocean. And if you think that sounds environmentally unfriendly, well, 
Sorry to break it to you, but cruise ships historically just dump waste overboard, so I don't feel too bad about a golf ball. But let's say we're on this young adult cruise together, and I set this Titleist Pro V1 on the tee, and I take out my big fat-headed driver, and I swing for the fences, and I just pound that thing 350 yards off of the boat, and I can barely see it just splash in the water. And then it drops 36,000 feet into the depth of the ocean. I mean, strictly speaking, that would be, hands down, the longest drive of my life. But I don't care if it's a Pro V1. I don't care if Fritz or Tiger Woods has signed the golf ball. I'm not going after it. There's no way. When that thing sinks to the bottom of the ocean, no one's going to find it. Ever. Friends, that's the picture of what God does to our sin. He takes our sin. He hurls it into the depth of the sea. It sinks to the bottom of the Mariana Trench never to be heard from again, never to be seen again, never to be talked about again. That is amazing. That is what God does with our sin. And Mike is not the only author in Scripture who's trying to search, trying to reach for some type of word picture to, to give us a glimpse of God's forgiveness. David does it in Psalm 103 when he says, God has taken our iniquity and he's separated it from us as far as the east is from the west, which actually might be one of the most geographically accurate verses in all of Scripture. Because if, if you and I start walking north today, eventually, if we walk north long enough, assuming we can walk on water, we're going to start walking south. But what happens if we start walking west? We're going to keep walking west forever. And the same thing is true if we start walking east. What's the distance between the east and the west? It's infinite. That's how far God has removed our sin from us. He tramples it under his feet. He casts it to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. He removes it as far from the east as from the west from us. That is God's forgiveness. And that's our first principle tonight. God forgives exhaustively. God forgives exhaustively. But come on, Sam. Aren't I too bad? To be forgiven? No, God forgives exhaustively. What if I give in to this same sin for the thousandth time? No, God forgives exhaustively. What if I'm concerned that I've blasphemed the spirit, that I've committed the unforgivable sin? Friends, I promise if you're asking that question, you've not committed that sin. The cross is enough to cover all Sin, not half of it, not 99% of it, not 99.99999% of it. No, the cross covers all sin. Jesus forgives exhaustively. <laughs> and here's the deal. When we give in to guilt and shame over sin that's already been forgiven, then in some way, even if it's subconscious, we're actually trying to pay penance for the sin that we've done. When we give in to guilt and shame, even if we don't realize it, here's what we're saying. I don't think the cross was quite enough to cover my sin. So I've got to feel extra bad about it to cover that last one or two percent. But that's not how it works. God forgives exhaustively. And sometimes one of the hardest things that we can do, but one of the most important things 
is to rest in his forgiveness, to accept his free gift of forgiveness, knowing that there's nothing that we could do to earn it or deserve it. But not only does God forgive exhaustively, he also forgives earnestly. Look at the end of verse 18, the beginning of verse 19. Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. What a great picture. That word compassion is actually a a picture of the way a, a mom or a dad loves or has compassion and empathy for their child. And we've all seen this happen. Maybe it's at Walmart, it's in the church lobby, it's at a family event where this little toddler is, is running through the hall and they can't quite, quite keep up. So they hit the deck, trip over their own feet, head hits the floor, and you can actually see them scream before you hear it. You know what I'm talking about? Their face turns red, they're trying to catch their breath, and then the screaming starts. And in between the gaffes, what are they, what are they doing or who are they talking to? Well, normally you hear mom or dad or whichever parent is closer as they run towards their parent. Now, Hannah and I aren't too far away from that happening to us. I mean, imagine one night after young adults, Matthias is just sprinting through the lobby. He trips and falls, smacks his head on the the carpet, somehow gets a cut on his face, and he's bleeding. Blood is dripping down his face. He comes running towards me and says, Dad! And I reply in my best dad voice and say, Tough it out, son. You're fine. Is that compassion? No. But I think some of us have this picture of that's what God does with us. That we can go running to God and we say, God, I'm broken. God, I'm hurting. God, I need help. And we, in our minds, we hear him say, nah, just tough it out. You're fine. No, that's not what God does. God treats us with love and with compassion. He wants us to run to him. He wants to embrace us in the midst of our guilt and our shame. When we're struggling, sometimes the last place we want to be is God's presence. But that's the most important place that we can be. We need to run to the Father. He forgives us earnestly. It's the picture that Jesus provides in the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. When there's a father and his son, and, and the son basically tells his dad, Dad, I love your money more than you. I wish you were dead. I want a cash advance on my inheritance. So give it to me now so I can go party so I don't have to wait for you to kick the bucket. And for some reason, the dad obliges, gives the son a cash advance on his inheritance, and he runs off to Israel's version of Las Vegas and spends his money on wisdom, wisdom, gambling, money, women, and everything else in elaborate living. And he spends his money on sin, and it disappears even faster than he could ever imagine. And he finds himself broke and broken, living in a pig pen, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating because he was working for this foreigner. And he comes to his senses and he thinks, man, my, my dad's servants, they're treated even better than, than I am. I should just go home and I don't have to be a son anymore. I'm just going to be a servant in my dad's house. Well, Jesus continues the, the parable and, and tells us that even when the son was far off, the father sees his son And the father goes running toward him, throws his arms around him and says, son, I love you. I forgive you. Welcome home. Now, Jesus didn't just tell us that account for no reason. He wanted to give us a picture of God's love for us. That in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of guilt over past or present mistakes, we need to run to the father who offers forgiveness. And maybe for some of us, That's just a challenge. 
Because maybe we view God as a dictator. Maybe you didn't have a very good earthly dad. And just calling dad father is a challenge in and of itself. But God loves you and wants to welcome you with open arms. We need to run to him even in the midst of those feelings of guilt and shame. He forgives us earnestly. But then there's this little word in verse 18 that I think we might miss, but I think it's important for us to see. God does not retain his anger forever. Forever. Think of the picture of forever. That in two years, God's not going to decide, ah, I'm going to go drive my submarine down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. I'm going to go dig up that sin. No, he doesn't do that. God's not going to decide a thousand years to an infinite eternity that we're not forgiven anymore. We've got to start paying penance for our sin. No, that's not how it works. God forgives eternally. And that's our final principle. God forgives eternally. He's not going to change his mind when he's offered us and given us his forgiveness. I mean, you put these things together, it has to be one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture, that God forgives eagerly and earnestly. He forgives exhaustively. He forgives eternally. There's a peace. There's a rightness that comes when we have peace in our relationship with God, when we know that we're forgiven. But we have to understand that when we're forgiven by God, does that eliminate earthly consequences from our sin? No, it doesn't. And we know that's true. And God will gladly forgive a prisoner who's on death row. But that prisoner is still going to have to fulfill their sentence. God will gladly forgive a couple or an individual struggling with premarital sex. But there still might be some consequences. God will gladly forgive us when we hurt someone, but we can't control how they're going to respond to us. That even in the midst of the consequences, earthly consequences of our sin, we have to remember that God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. And we might be walking through a painful consequence. God is with us. He's going to walk with us through the pain. His mercy is new every morning. He gives us grace that we need each day. There's a chance tonight that there's a sin in here that you've been hiding. Maybe nobody knows about it. Maybe it's been eating you alive. And you don't know what to do. Talk to God. Confess your sin to Him. Repent. Turn away from it. And pursue, follow the life that He has for you. But the second thing is we've got to talk. You've got to talk to somebody else. If you're keeping sin from a spouse, you've got to tell him. If you're struggling with secret sin, then maybe it's time to bring in a, a mentor or an accountability partner or a spiritual leader in your life. We can't keep sin in the dark. We can't fight it on our own. We've got to confess to somebody else. But maybe you've done that. Maybe you've confessed your sin to others. Maybe you've turned away from it and you feel really bad about what you've done. But there's still this guilt and this shame that you're carrying around in a backpack for sin that's already been forgiven. Well, I've got some homework for you this week, if that's you. I want you to find a golf ball. And if you want something a little more eco-friendly, then find a rock. And I want you to grab a Sharpie. And whatever that sin is in here, 
that's eating you alive. That you're carrying around in that backpack of guilt and shame. I want you to write it in a sharpie on that rock or that golf ball. You know, we're not going to probably be able to take a trip to the Mariana Trench. But find the next best thing. Find some open water somewhere. Find a park. doesn't really matter where. And I want you to take that rock and chuck it as far as you possibly can. But when you do, pray through a passage like Micah 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depth of the sea. And we ask God in that moment, Father, help me know that I'm forgiven. Take away my guilt and shame. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of even what we talked about in Jonah last week, that Jonah had the audacity to accuse you of being a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That you show compassion and that you give forgiveness. Father, we hold fast to your forgiveness tonight. Knowing the enemy wins when we give in to guilt and shame over sin that's already been forgiven. Father, if there's somebody here tonight that maybe has never crossed the line, that doesn't yet know you, doesn't have that relationship with you, may they decide tonight to follow you, to receive your free gift of forgiveness, to give their life to you. And if there's somebody here that is struggling with some unconfessed and unrepented sin, then may today be the day of turning, of exposing the sin to the light, of talking about it and repenting. And if there's a brother or sister here tonight that's dealing with guilt over sin that's already been confessed, it's already been forgiven, yet they're just having a hard time letting go. Father, make them know and feel your forgiveness, knowing that you take our sin and you throw it into the depth of the ocean. In Jesus' name, amen.